like to submit a story, topic, or have any other inquiries, please email submit at skibanewsnation.com. Also, you can email Jeremiah Skiba personally at jeremiah at skibanewsnation.com. Also, email Jake personally at jake at skibanewsnation.com. If you want to write us a letter, send us something, help support us, or just say hi, please send your letter to Jeremiah Skiba, P.O. Box 560-271, The Colony, Texas 75056. If you write us a letter, I'll do my best to write you back. Hey, Skiba News Nation family, thank you for watching. Please like, share, subscribe, and click that notification bell so you never miss an episode of Skiba News Nation. If you want to help support us, please consider becoming a Patreon, where you will get exclusive content, shoutouts, and much more. You can also support our channel by getting yourself some new Skiba News Nation merch. Thank you for coming on this journey with us as we continue to stay on the quest for truth. Huge shout out to all our Patreon supporters. Thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do this show without you. If you want to help support us, go to patreon.com forward slash Skiba News Nation. Also, you can listen to Skiba News Nation podcasts on your favorite podcast platform. I want to know what the truth is. And I hope that people, my son, anybody, if my name comes up, whether you like me, whether you agree with me or not, at least you can respect the fact that he's on a quest for truth. He's on a quest for truth. Welcome to Skiba News Nation. Bringing you unfiltered views, news, interviews, discussions, and more. And now, here's your host, Jeremiah Skiba, award-winning musician and son of Rob Skiba. Hey, Skiba News Nation family, welcome to episode 61 of Skiba News Nation, your weekly source of the latest news, controversial topics, conspiracies, forgotten history, and so much more. I'm your host, Jeremiah Skiba, and today we're going to be talking about more than 70,000 at Burning Man Festival stuck in the Nevada desert after flood, Tropical Storm Lee continues to strengthen, Jill Biden tests positive COVID-19 again, more mandates, Chinese e-bikes are exploding, home insurers cut natural disaster from policies, Maui fires, and direct energy weapons, an all-new Opus Corner, and for history, we'll be doing a deep dive into the Clinton hit list, memes, and much more, so subscribe and stay tuned. Now, as always, I'd like to introduce my great and insightful co-host, Mr. Jake Grant. Welcome, Jake. How was the Bertaria Times National Festival? Jeremiah, it was amazing. I mean, talk about an event where people are truly seeking after truth, all about family, all about walking out a strong, based life, a faith life. Uh, it was an amazing opportunity to talk with people from all over the country. Uh, it was really sweet. Um, my band, Simply Prodigal, actually opened up the festival, so... We performed some of our songs, and it was a, a jam, man. They really loved us. Uh, they invited us to come back next year as well. Uh, so we got to rock out, Simply Prodigal got to rock out, 
and uh, and then we, my wife and I, sold fruit fizzy sodas uh, during the festival. So uh, it was pretty hot, so people were thirsty. So we, you know, tried to have a booth that would, you know, quench some thirst. Uh, and not only, you know, physical thirst, but I was trying to get into some, like, really meaningful, deep conversations to quen quench that, you know, thirst of the soul, you know what I mean? So yeah. we were up late talking way into the early morning hours, all all around the campfire, uh, people just from all over the place, you know, with some amazing uh, insights about the world, amazing uh, testimonies, uh, you know, about their faith walk and the way that they've come out of Babylon. And, dude, it was super cool. And, of course, you know, it was, it was hilarious watching Owen Benjamin's comedy. Uh, he did the first uh, special he's done in four years there. So we got to watch him do an hour-long comedy special. It was uh, super cool. There was a lot of kids there, very pro-family event. Um, so, man, it, it was a blast, absolute blast. Yeah, I'm going to have to come next year, man. You said uh, a lot of people recognized you from the show, which is awesome. Yeah, man, that we bumped into people that uh, I've known over the years, people that I've never met before that were like, hey, I've seen you online and stuff. And, you know, uh, dude, we have to get you out there uh, some next year or, or, or whenever the next big event is. Uh, uh, but, yeah, definitely next year, Jeremiah, you got to make it to the Veritaria Times National Festival. Oh, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Well, you got, you got uh, some good current news for us today? Yeah, I got some uh, really interesting stories. Let's get into it. All right, man. Awesome. So while we were at the Bertaria Times National Festival having a blast, uh, eating good food, having great conversation, uh, out in the Nevada desert, more than 70,000 people at the Burning Man Festival uh, were stuck uh, in like a giant bog of rain and, and just uh, pain, pretty much. <laughs> uh, Owen actually brought it up during his comedy special how, you know, we're out here with all these uh, families crushing, you know, making life happen, and, and these people are stuck with 70,000 sodomites, you know, in a mud pit. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, Burning Man is not all, you know, bad people. You know, I've heard, you know, different things there, like the, the tent of the unknown god and people that are there to help connect with some very confused, lost people. Um, but uh, the, the festival, uh, the Bertaria Festival, to me, uh, was just an amazing blessing. And then I look at, like, how the festival where people walk around butt naked and uh you know they're like you know all into their new age craziness uh it just it seems like such a such a trial for these people people were stuck there for hours and hours couldn't leave they were forced to stay uh it was flooding um and uh yeah man and and it just makes you think that you know if you go to a big event the people that are at the event are who you're going to be uh, going through a hard time with if a hard time comes. Um, a couple of years ago, I went through a flash flood in uh, uh, 
southern Missouri, uh, and we were keeping Passover in a flash flood. I don't know if you knew this, Jeremiah, but I was on the big M Missouri you know, news station talking about a flash flood that hit our our Passover event, and nobody was hurt. But what I saw from that experience was that people uh, who really have a strong faith and strong, you know, morals can do hard, difficult things and be better for it. And so uh, there were people rescuing people, people, you know, providing you know, food and shelter and, and support for everybody. Um, and then, you know, it just makes me wonder how it was in this disaster with uh, all these Burning Man attendees going through uh, just a, a crazy, crazy flood, uh, totally washed out their event. But anyway, so I just want to, you know, I thought that was crazy. This disaster happened the same time as we were at the Bertaria Times Festival. And I'm so glad that uh, it wasn't a mud pit uh, out there in Missouri uh, like it was there in Nevada. Because, uh, man, that makes it miserable getting together yeah. with people and just wet. Muddy. So uh, uh, our next story here is pretty significant if you're a student of ancient biblical archaeology. Um, the, the site on Mount Ebal uh, that is credited with the place where the oldest known recording of the Tetragrammaton or the name of the creator was found is going to be paved over by the Palestinian Authority as mm. they're paving roads over the ruins of this historic site. Uh, it was an altar set up by Joshua. Um, so it says here the Palestinian Authority has begun building a neighborhood on the site of Joshua's altar on Mount Ebal in northern Samaria. And the reason this is significant and the reason I wanted you guys to be aware of this is because if you have heard in the past, uh, this was a big deal, uh, a curse amulet with the oldest mention of yod heh vav -Heh ever was found in Israel, and it was found at this location uh, on Mount Ebal. Um, and so the amulet with an inscription in proto-alphabetic Hebrew included the name of God, Yahuwah, right? And if correctly dated, it would be the earliest mentioned of Yahuwah in Hebrew ever found in Israel. And the amulet was discovered during the Mount Ebal dump salvage project. And just like the article says, the Palestinian Authority is now planning to create neighborhoods on this site. Uh, so it's kind of like, uh, all right, well, they found some really ancient, awesome uh, biblical archaeology there. Let's pave over it and, you know, hide the evidence, right? So mm -hmm. it's uh, a little interesting. Um, so it's a, a hair a heritage site uh, for you know people that uh, want to show that the Bible is archaeologically accurate as well as true and uh, and so them paving over it is a big deal in my opinion um, that brings us to uh, a an interesting post I saw uh, by Chad Riley I, I love to get some memes and, and different videos sometimes from Chad because uh, he's he's very well connected with the conspiracy world, and um, I wanted to share this that he posted recently, and it was really interesting, and it, it's a throwback to some of our investigation into the uh, PSYOPs and the Project Monarch and 
project, uh, project Montauk uh, uh, that the CIA has perpetrated over the years. Um, and apparently in 1954, the CIA published a 27-page document titled A History of Ouija and Intelligence Applications. And that indicated the agency was attempting to uncover whether the clenchette could be a tool in their spy games. Uh, so this is an official uh, list uh, of the CIA's like documents. And you can see here a history of Ouija and intelligence application. And that's crazy. Um, you know, you, like I'm a Ouija board? This. It says, exactly. They were using Ouija boards or at least attempting attempting to use Ouija boards for intelligence operations. Um, elements within the Army and the CIA had a deep interest in the subject and in trying to uh, determine if the use of ESP or extrasensory perception and even Ouija boards could help resolve an understanding of the UFO presence. In February 1954, the CIA published a 27-page document titled A History of Ouija and Intelligence Applications that demonstrated the agency was trying to determine if Ouija boards might be useful tools for espionage. Oh. So, uh, you know, there, there's that uh, movie that came out uh, a couple years ago called The Men Who Stare at Goats. Did you ever see that movie? I didn't. No. Well, it's a, it's a it kind of breaks down this black uh, black budget operation of these special agencies that were trying to investigate extrasensory perception um, but I find it so interesting that they bring in this connection with using Ouija boards to help resolve an understanding of the UFO presence and we know like from the of course from the biblical perspective that using Ouija boards to contact the dead is actually um, a, a, a deception you know, and that what you're actually contacting is spiritual demonic entities. And uh, your dad's made the case for years how the alien phenomena is best explained by fallen angels or demons. And, uh, and just the fact that they were bringing in the use of Ouija boards uh, in some of these early applications to figure out uh, UFO presence and, and to try ESP... Uh, espionage is really interesting and just shows you the people that are involved with the CIA back in the 1950s 60s uh, and then leading into the well-known conspiratorial uh, operations like Operation MK Ultra. all of these were preceded by investigations in demonic topics like Ouija boards uh, and, and demonic tools like Ouija boards and it really does show that the people that are running these agencies uh, are definitely opening themselves up to dark spiritual influences, uh, demonic uh, communication with fallen entities. And uh, I thought that was a really interesting post. Um, so I just want to share that. Uh, this next uh, topic, uh, this coming weekend, it seems that uh, Tropical Storm Lee uh, continues to strengthen to become an extremely dangerous hurricane by the weekend. And I want to go ahead and play this video as this hurricane uh, could cause some damage. So check out this video here.
top story is Lee. You know, Jason, we went from an invest to a tropical storm in just a matter of hours. Yeah, this storm has already jumped two different categories here, which this is why we are so confident here that this is going to be forecasting into a major hurricane here. Now, where it has max winds at 65 miles per hour, Lee is still churning well to the east of the Leeward Islands. It is max winds at 14, or should say it's moving uh, west-northwest at 14 miles per hour. All indications are that this is going to continue to push westward here. Now, is it expected to make landfall here? Well, that's still up in the air here, but we are very confident that at least for some of the Caribbean islands, this is going to produce not only some rough surf, but also push up some of those winds, especially for those of you that are going to be heading to Puerto Rico here. Now, there are some indications that beyond this forecast that it could have some impacts to the United States here. Point to note here, it is still far too early to tell whether or not this is going to end up happening here. But, Britta, as we take a look at the infrared, one of the things that it's pretty important to note is this storm is still missing that eye, that center of that circulation, which is what we use to figure out what's going to be happening next with this system. And that's going to quickly change. I mean, we got a lot of heat out there. Here's the visible satellite because now we have light of day so we can run this product. And what we're noticing is a lot more thunderstorm development in the northeast quadrant. So that's been an area that's been a little more dry. Now we're seeing the moisture tick up. Also, we've seen these finger-like clouds off on the northwest side. That's the wind shear. And the wind shear is going to be going down, trending downward over the next 12 hours. And that's really the only thing that is holding Lee back. So once the wind shear is resolved. We're left with very warm water, ample moisture. This is going to be gasoline on the fire. And so we're quickly going to see this storm rapidly intensify, which all of our major hurricanes this year, Jason, have rapidly intensified. And, and I think it, it's uh, kind of mind-boggling mind to really think about the fact that we've had all of these different hurricanes and all of these tropical systems that have pushed through the Caribbean as well as the Atlantic. They have pulled a lot of the warm water uh, up to the sky, up to the clouds, right? I mean, that's why you get some of these tall cumulonimbus clouds as a result of this, right? But this also is important to, uh, it, it's also further verification about just how deep a lot of this warmth uh, really trends down here. I mean, so we're talking about several feet here. So this is why, you know, we're fairly confident that Lee is going to end up becoming a major hurricane. I mean, one or two of the models here, but are even indicating that this bad boy could mm -hmm. even be upgraded to a Category 5 at some yeah. point. Yeah, and this weekend it's going to be a close call for the Caribbean islands. Uh, most of our computer models keep it north. There's a lot of confidence to that turn to the north, but this is a big storm and it's a powerful one. All right. So I, I thought it was really important to show that, hey, there's a, a big hurricane headed, you know, towards the coast and it's, it's going to cause some damage. And the reason I wanted to share that is because last week we covered a story about how people were fleeing from a coming tropical storm and the gas stations were tainted by bad fuel and people were stranded and not able to escape uh, the natural disaster that came. Uh, and I don't think it was so bad, you know, but a lot of people had their cars destroyed, their, their generators that they were using the bad fuel on destroyed. And, uh, and so it's interesting to me that, you know, we're entering into hurricane season and uh, it's good to be aware. Um, but uh, on to our next topic. Uh, you said you actually saw this article 
uh, Jeremiah, what do you think about of the fact that they're posting that Jill Biden is now testing positive for COVID-19 again? What, what are your thoughts on that, man? I think it's they're just trying to scare us. They're just trying to uh, do, you know, what they did back in, when was it, 2019, 2020, where they, they want to do shutdowns again. They want to do all that BS, you know? They want to control us. I mean, yeah. so they're using a public figure to, you know, the the president's wife as an, you know, as an example of, hey, we need to, it's serious, you know, like everybody needs to lock down. But. Yeah, absolutely. And we're entering into an interesting time frame as well because we're coming close to uh, the 2024 election cycle push. Uh, so instituting more lockdowns, more mandates, seeing who's going to bow to the beast system again uh, is definitely something that is being kind of foreshadowed in a lot of mainstream media nowadays. And uh, there's uh, some interesting, you know, memes I wanted to share. Uh, check this one out. It's time people admit that the mainstream media's job is not to tell you the truth, but their job is to make sure you don't find out the truth because that would be bad for business. And uh, Jeremiah, I wanted you to share, uh, you, you said Lindsay came across a crazy Pfizer ad. Share that story. Well, she was on Instagram and she was sliding through and she showed me and it was like, something about Pfizer and it was just trying to, to get people to get it. And, it and it was it was I don't know if we can say that word still but they were pretty much telling people that were vaxxed to get another booster and another booster <laughs> it's like it, it's a never-ending cycle but it didn't really say anything about people that weren't which was interesting so they're kind of saying something without saying something yeah yeah, for sure. I mean, if you uh, were one of the demographics that fell for the scam, you're more likely to fall for it again. And we covered in a previous episode, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, but how uh, people who received the COVID-V uh, are actually more likely, according to recent research, more likely to contract the next virus, apparently, and uh, so they're encouraging people that have received the, the V to go and get the next booster or the next, you know, thing that comes out to protect yourself because you're more susceptible because you participated in the past. And that to me is hilarious. It's interesting that they're promoting it on Instagram, too. I thought that was very interesting that it would just pop up as an ad on Instagram. So I don't know if that's something yeah. that they always do, but. I, I thought it was pretty interesting and pretty weird. Yeah, people f forget that the WHO uh, is, in a way, beholden to the pharmaceutical company interests that fund the research, that put the doctors into the positions, that uh, help make decisions for the WHO, uh, that are put, put into the NIH, uh, Nas National Institute for Health, uh, and they lead the American populace to believe certain things are good for our communal health, such as participant mandates, uh, following the protocols, uh, receiving the squirt squirt juice into our bodies. And, um, and people need to remember that it is a business. So 97% of scientists agree with whoever is funding them. <laughs> 
I mean, you can't get farther from the truth. Uh, I mean, when when it comes to somebody who wants to make a buck off you, they will tell you anything that they can to make you buy their product. Whether that means scaring you and your loved ones that you're going to die or, or cause your elderly family members to contract something that you might lose them over, but uh, you know you won't be able to see them on their deathbed because uh, the mandates will keep you from it. Uh, you know, keep you from visiting. You know, you'll have to see them through a, a, a telephone tube or whatever, or look or not a see them at all, and, or not see them at all. Um, so yeah, I thought this was a very a hilarious meme. It's a scientist, you know, zooming in on the the dollar bill, and, and that's their focus, right? Um, mm -hmm. But you know, there's always a, a good-hearted researcher out there. Uh, there's many doctors that stood up against the protocols and the mandates and spoke truth. And their intention is to help humankind, to uh, to help preserve people's life, and to shed truth on this scientism that has taken the world by storm. I want to share this. Uh, for thousands of years, people have known how to grow food, sew clothing, treat sickness with food and herbs build shelters and survive. It's only took two generations to all but erase those skills from humanity and make us completely dependent on and at the mercy of the system. Um, and I wanted to ask Opa this, you know, Opa, you know, you're from an older generation that, you know, people still knew how to take care of themselves, how to work on car engines, how to garden, how to can food. You know, how do you see the world has changed uh, in, in, you know, in today's world? Yep, uh, back back uh, when I was growing up, uh, we all basically uh, knew how to do everything. We knew how to sew. If we had a pair of jeans that needed uh, the knee sewed up, we could sew it up ourselves. As a matter of fact, my mom made sure that we all could do that. And, uh, and you know, basically take care of ourselves we didn't rely on anybody else uh, but now nowadays I mean nowadays they they rely on grocery stores and they don't sew their own clothes or darn their own socks they just go out and buy some new ones and throw them away and you know it, it's very very different from when I was growing up yeah, and you know why they do that is when you forget those skills, then they can create an industry around it to suck money out of us. You know, if you can't sew your own clothes, you have to go to somebody that they, you have to pay to sew your clothes. And then they can create those industries to, to draw more resources from people. Absolutely. Uh, here's an interesting uh, news story. Uh, in 2018, the South African government confiscated 300,000 guns from white farmers. And today, the South African government is openly and actively calling for the genocide of white farmers, the majority of them having nothing to defend their land, their families, or themselves, and, and they're being tortured, raped, and killed. And it only took five years. And uh, this is a pattern we see uh, across the world uh, and we see the push against the Second Amendment here in the United States and uh, and whenever a populace is disarmed the government oftentimes can become 
terrible and uh, and cause genocide. I mean, we saw uh, the disarming of people in Nazi Germany. We see the disarming people here of South Africa. Uh, I don't know if you saw that recently, but it was a giant uh, conference or like a, a government festival or whatever, and they were chanting, death to the white farmers uh, in, uh, in a big uh, like gathering and stuff in South Africa, a heritage gathering or whatever. And, um, and so it's, it's crazy how the world is changing. And, um, and it's just, uh, it all starts when we give up our freedoms and we check out that they have our best interests at heart. Well, the more that you depend on the government and the systems that, uh, keep you comfortable, make life easier, the more that that rug can be pulled out from under you. And we see that happening in South Africa right now. Yeah. All right, uh, here's another uh, interesting article. Uh, so let me get this straight. Japan is starting to routinely dump toxic radioactive waste into one of the largest wild fisheries on the planet, and no one's going to stop them? How is this not considered to be an attack on the global food security? Uh, and uh, just re uh, a CNN article recently said that China is banning seafood from Japan after Tokyo begins releasing treated radioactive water. And we showed a video several episodes back uh, covering this topic. So if you guys haven't seen that, I would go back and watch it for further breakdown on that topic. But uh, there is an attack on the global food supply uh, and it's not just grain, uh, rice, which we covered last week. Uh, it's also uh, fish, right? Mm -hmm. uh, here's a picture. Uh, we've covered this briefly, but did you see the Indian uh, moon landing that was recently publicized, Jeremiah? I did. <clears throat> it's another thing Lindsay sent me. Uh, she sent me when they first did it, and I was like, she so she's a teacher so she was indoctrinated kind of you know she she believed nasa when we first started dating and then as time went on she was like oh this is this is not real <laughs> this is completely not real and so she's like the most anti-nasa space travel person ever it's pretty awesome but yeah it looks like what what's that old asteroids is that what it is the game yep that's what it looks like to me on a, exactly. on a yeah, Google mean, Moon, you know, like Google Earth, but Google Moon. <laughs> so bad. They say this is the official footage of the Indian government's moon landing mission. And they're like all cheering and clapping. And they're looking at a literal CGI cartoon, uh, which is crazy to think about. And it, it does look like one of those all old games. Uh, like, uh, it, it reminds me of, like, the Lunar Lander game, too. Because, mm -hmm. you know, have you ever, ever played that really old Lunar Lander, the 2D game? Yeah. You know, where you have to, you know, land. Man, it looks, it's so, it's so fake looking. And they're like, this is the official footage of us landing on the moon. Yay, and they, could, they couldn't even try. They couldn't even try to make it a little bit better. Know, right. And, and, you know, Indians are one of the smartest people in the world. Like, they're the smartest kind of people in, in some aspects. And you would think that they would be able to create better fake footage, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And in the words of Elon Musk, it's you know it's real because it looks so fake. <laughs> Man. 
So uh, here's a, a next thing. Uh, on the topic related to what I started off sharing with Jill uh, Biden coming up positive, uh, look, look here, Whoopi Goldberg, veed and boosted, absent from the view during uh, due to COVID-19 for the third time. So there's all these celebrities that once again are coming down with COVID-19 and it looks like the next wave of fear-mongering is upon us. Uh, here's a, another quick article that I thought was very interesting. Uh, paper and bamboo straws contain PFAs, uh, chemicals, more often than plastic straws do. A recent study finds uh, researchers found low concentrations of so-called forever chemicals in various eco-friendly straws, raising doubts about whether they're an appropriate alternative. Uh, you know, you have uh, plastic plastic straws covered in plastic, uh, or paper straws covered in plastic, and plastic straws covered in paper. Uh, it's just the nonsense of eco-friendly consumerism and... Uh, it's just insanity, man, and and people don't realize that no matter what we're using, there are these forever chemicals and these poisons that we seem to not be able to get away from. Uh, so I, I thought that was a, a really interesting uh, insight there that they found these forever chemicals in paper eco-friendly straws. You know. Yep. So whenever uh, it comes to being different than the system, right, uh, I wanted to share this. Uh, who did you notice more? Was it the single crow sitting on a line by himself? You know, the peculiar crow standing out from the crowd, being his own individual, not following all the others, you know, or did you notice one of the crows that was sitting up there, you know, with all its buddies, you know, following the, uh, the bandwagon? And I've noticed in today's world, people are so hungry for bandwagons to jump onto. And um, it really it really does show the psychology of mankind. And it explains how people are so easily deceived by uh, deceptions, by uh, misdirections, by slander and gossip. And people can be drawn into a bandwagon. Uh, because they're kind of pumped up and they want to be part of the in club and they don't double check their facts and uh, and so we lied about everything last time but this time you can trust the science <laughs> <laughs> whatever right Jeremiah yep. I mean whenever somebody lies to you once I think it throws into question anything they tell you that comes after that and, uh, and that, that's the case for any sort of topic that's being covered. If somebody can be proven to be a liar or a, a distorter of the truth, uh, I, th I think they, their validity as a witness should be completely upended. Um, and so uh, it's just an interesting world we find ourselves in today. Um, this next video I want to share, everyone, is a crazy st a topic of... Chinese e-bikes are now exploding like crazy in a self-destruction spectacle. Check this video out. If you see a Chinese electric bike on fire, you'd better run. <laughs> 
If it happens to be parked next to other electric bikes, well, you're in for a spectacular scene. Why are Chinese electric motorcycles so apt to explode in such a spectacular manner? Well, it all comes down to an unregulated industry. I'm going to explain. You see, motorcycles in China are seen as a poor man's form of transport. In fact, motorcycles are banned in all of the large cities in China. And I'll explain to you why. Number one, snatch and grab robberies were a huge issue. There used to be gangs of bandits roaming around ready to grab someone's purse or their phone or whatever, and they'd quite often drag people down the road doing so. This was a huge issue in China when I first got there. And this is something that the Chinese government decided, especially the local city governments and the local provincial governments decided to stamp out by banning motorcycles outright. But of course, there's another reason behind it. Motorcycles look poor. And when you're a local government in your city, you're trying to produce this image of a pristine, modern city. You don't want motorcycles in it because it just runs the place down. You've got these ramshackle bikes going here and there, dodging through traffic, doing all these crazy things. So, of course, that's another reason why motorcycles were banned in the largest cities. So, in order to replace motorcycles, you had all these factories producing cheap, low-end motorcycles and scooters. They had to somehow come up with a way to bring in revenue. So they retrofitted all of their old scooters and made them into electric scooters. It's very simple to do throw a bunch of lead-acid batteries inside of them, put a hub motor on the rear, a little speed controller, and you're done. I know a lot about this, by the way, because I used to modify and ride and mess around with electronic scooters and e-scooters, whatever you want to call them, e-bikes, in China for the longest time. And that's because I couldn't ride a real motorcycle in the big city. So my main form of transport was an e-bike of some form or the other, and I did all sorts of funny things with them and souped them up, and it was actually a lot of fun. Now, the thing is, those first-generation e-bikes used lead-acid batteries. You know, that's the kind of battery that most cars have that, you know, you start for your starter. And uh, they're actually not too dangerous. They don't catch on fire spontaneously, really. I mean, if they would, you'd see a lot of that. Um, so lead-acid batteries are fairly safe. But they're not safe for the environment, I'll tell you that much. The chemicals and the way they're produced, if not properly recycled, uh, can be devastating. You don't want that stuff running off into a river or into your groundwater or your soil. But here's the thing. The e-bikes were then unregulated. You didn't need a license to ride them. They didn't need license plates because it was a new thing. And they got pumped up by the millions. And so people would buy them because they're fairly cheap and ride them around the cities. And it created the same issue. Massive amounts of traffic jams. Chaos. This image of a poor city because now you've got ramshackle e-bikes everywhere rather than motorcycles. So the Chinese government stepped in and started to confiscate e-bikes. So they'd confiscate all of these things. They'd set up roadblocks. They'd put them on the back of trucks. In fact, I had an e-bike confiscated from me um, at some point. 
And it was very random. There were no real notices about what you could and couldn't ride. And finally, they brought out some rules that you could only ride the smaller e-bikes, the little foldable type ones. And even those have been now banned in a lot of places. So anyway, what you ended up with were massive fields of electric bikes, just huge, you know, the scale of which you've never seen. And they would just sit there to rot because, first of all, it's too expensive to recycle or scrap them. Nobody wants to take ownership of that. The local government certainly doesn't want to deal with it. The owner has no access because his bike has been taken from him by the government and you can't get them back. So you have these massive graveyards of these things rotting away into the soil, batteries and all. And occasionally they'd catch fire and it's apocalyptic when they do. Um, absolutely horrendous and terrible for the environment. But the fires started when lithium-ion batteries started to become the mainstay. Because as we know, technology progresses. And we went from lead-acid batteries in these bikes to lithium-ion batteries. You know, the same type of battery you have in your phone or you have in any electronic device these days. There'll be some variant of a, a lithium-ion battery. So these, unfortunately, are far more volatile. If you don't have proper quality control, if those batteries aren't properly maintained and looked after, there's a chance that they could, well, explode, as we see in this footage over here. And these bikes are so poorly put together because it's just a mass copy of a copy of a copy. Factories everywhere springing up making these things. It's very easy. I know because I used to build my own ones because I could go and get a frame here, body parts there, this there, the motor here, there. You could just buy these things on Taobao. All the factories, they just buy all these random bits and pieces. The quality control is not there. Slap it together, you're ready to go. And these things vibrate and you've got the batteries shaking around because they're not properly mounted. And it's really just a, it's a recipe for disaster, okay? So these things catch fire. And it doesn't only happen in China. In fact, not that long ago, this year, four people died in New York because in New York Chinatown, there was an e-bike shop that was repairing these Chinese electric vehicles and charging the batteries there. And guess what? One of these janky batteries caught fire and the whole shop went up and the apartments above caught fire too and four people actually died. And if you look into it and if you actually start to do some investigation, you'll find out that across the country in the USA and elsewhere, there are many fires, casualties and deaths caused by electric scooters and other electronic thing gadgets that have got, uh, you know, lithium-ion batteries in that are of poor quality. So a uh, little bit of a PSA, by the way, before we continue here is if you do happen to have some or other, I don't know if it's kind of like a power wheels type thing for your kid or a, a scooter, electric scooter or electric bike, anything of that nature, and you've maybe bought it for your kid, you've forgotten it, stuck it in the garage or something, please, please go make sure that it's not plugged in and sitting on a charger all the time. If you can, store it outside, especially if it's not a proper name brand and has a name on it that you can't pronounce. I mean, I'm talking about hoverboards, anything that's got a sizable lithium-ion battery in it, please store it outside. Or make sure that it's in good shape and that it's, like I said, not charging. Because, you know, if it gets too hot in the garage, if something goes... You never know what could set this thing off, but they are a fire hazard and the stats are there to prove it. You can go look it up. I'm not trying to scare anyone or be a fear monger or anything like that, but please don't take the risk. 
just like I said, you can go read up on it. It is a risk. Anyway, I hope you can understand why these uh, Chinese e-bikes, you keep seeing videos of them catching fire and why they are such a bad hazard. And it really boils down to the fact that it's a very unregulated industry and uh, the abuse that these things suffer is quite horrendous in China. I've seen it firsthand, done it myself, and uh, it's no surprise that these things catch fire, to be honest. Here's the thing, though. I wanted to end this video with something very positive. You know, you, watching my video about those fields of rotting EVs, remember that video I did? It got a great amount of views and it got featured in the press and it actually forced some change in China because nobody had really shone a spotlight on it before. Now some of the local governments were actually questioned by big news outlets and it created a fairly uncomfortable situation for the Chinese government where they actually had to address the problem and say, yeah, okay, we will try to clean up and move, or at least they put these false promises that they're going to move some of these cars and try to clean up some of these graveyards because they were sitting there to rot and they would have continued to sit there to rot, batteries and all, into the ground. And the reason behind this is the majority of these big graveyards, these fields of cars that you see, are part of these failed car sharing startups that were subsidized by the Chinese government. Remember, the Chinese government is making a massive push to make it look as if they're the leader in green technology in the world. This is also another reason why e-bikes have been ramped up and pushed out and you know gotten to the point where they are in China. And because of this, these cars were all registered, they were all paid for by the government, and so now the company has received the money for this car. They produced the car, they registered it, it's got a license plate, now what are they going to do with it? They can't sell it. If they try to sell it or move it on, well, now they have to explain to the Chinese government why they're not giving the money back, right? They also have to explain to the Chinese government why the subsidy was a waste of money because it's just sitting in a field somewhere. So it's too difficult and too uncomfortable to deal with. And that's why none of these graveyards will go away. They're not sitting there waiting for some kind of an arbitration in court about who's going to take control of what asset. No, because they've already been bought and paid for by the Chinese government to these companies that just pump them out and put them in a field when they could no longer really be viable. So they will just continue to sit there and rot. And they would have continued to just sit there and rot completely untouched if it wasn't for my video and the subsequent news coverage. So now there's a chance that some of them are going to be cleaned up. And I think that's fantastic that you have been a part of this change. So uh, again, as I always say, the only way you can ever force any kind of change in China, or I should say enact any kind of change in China, is by making the Chinese government lose face. All right, so that was really interesting, Jeremiah. I mean, you got to watch out for this new, uh, you know, electric technology. When you're sitting on batteries and stuff, it, it reminds me of the big push uh, against gasoline-powered vehicles and alternative energy sources for transportation. Uh, you never know. I mean, it could just explode. <laughs> yeah, just um, like the Teslas. I mean, Teslas were doing that. One happened down the road from here. Yep. I mean, it happens all the time, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that comes with the uh, the push to control mankind because uh, really, if you're dependent on an electric grid and something goes wrong with your device 
you know, your bike blows up and that battery that was running it or your Tesla blows up and that battery that was running it is destroyed forever, there is no possible way that you can recreate that quality of a lithium battery to run your vehicle. Uh, and so you'll have to go back to the manufacturer. However, if you're in like a gas powered vehicle and your engine blows up, ideally you could technically find parts to replace it and get it working again. And so to me, it just lends to the whole concept of creating endless consumers that are completely dependent on industries and can't build or repair outside of, you know, registered mechanics or whatever. Yeah, you know, but what a scary topic, man. Back in the 50s, like what we were talking about, you know, we I had a lot of friends that, uh, you know, built their own jalopies from from old cars or actually built their old tall bikes or worked on their bikes or or made uh, go karts. And, you know, they all did it themselves. They, they just took whatever parts they can find and, and come together and put it together today i don't i don't even know if anybody knows how to fix anything they got to take <laughs> it down to a, a specialist a specialist right exactly exactly and man it, it's just uh it, it just is it's how they can keep people paying money into products uh I know there was actually a, a grand conspiracy of the light bulb. Have you ever you guys ever heard the conspiracy of how light bulbs way back in the day actually lasted uh, way more watt hours than what they do today? And what happened was all the light bulb manufacturers got together and instituted a an agreement where if your light bulb lasted longer than a certain period of time, you would be fine because they wanted customers that would return and buy more light bulbs and not have a light bulb that could last them, you know, here to eternity. Uh, That's crazy. So, uh, I mean, it reminds me of that light bulb that, you know, there's that Edison light bulb that's still running, right? In that, like, it's some museum somewhere, they have a, mm -hmm. like a, still one of those early light bulbs with a filament that's never burned out. It's never, you know, busted, but... Uh, there's a reason that they make them today where they'll fail. And, and I think that same model has been passed to like phone technology. There's a reason that older iPhones stop working. It's been actually proven that they slow down the software and they force you to be frustrated with how bad the technology is working. So you'll buy the newest phone. Planned yeah. obsolescence. That's uh, planned obsolescence. That's it. That's right with the cars. You know, your your cars aren't. You know, the older cars back. Like I said, they made jalopies out of them and stuff. But those cars lasted forever. You could get two hundred, three hundred, four hundred thousand miles on them. Today, you're lucky if a car lasts a hundred thousand miles. Really. Yeah. Uh, refrigerators have to be replaced. Microwave ovens have to be replaced. Washing machines and dryers all have to be replaced wow. now. Whereas in the old days, it uh, well actually they didn't have dryers in the old days, but we used nature for drying. But it still it it, uh, it they just don't last like they used to do. And that's why the life that we live can't be dependent on these systems that turn us into slaves. And I wanted to share this one. Uh, how to prepare for the days ahead. Move to rural areas, stock up food, tap your well, and start gardening.
hard because in the end, these are the things that make somebody independent of systems of control. And uh, there's no mandate for you if you have your own garden, your own food, your own water, and uh, you don't have to go into, you know, you know, participate in the dangling carrot of control. Um, mm -hmm. Do you remember when we treated viruses with soup, vitamin C, and plenty of rest instead of communism? <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, man. I mean, today's world, I mean, people need to be encouraged and reminded that we've survived and, and people are hardy and people can make it through tough times. But I think the fear state that is constantly being pushed on the collective consciousness through the media keeps us asking for solutions that we don't really need. And that's where you get, you know, the, the pharmacia answer, right? Yep. Well, uh, here's another article. Uh, just a few more stories today, guys. Uh, we shared last week a breakdown on the Maui fires and directed energy, uh, directed energy weapons. And uh, I want to read this article, uh, how there is profound evidence that directed energy weapons truly were being used, uh, and it's really interesting. It says here, the recent fires in California, Australia, and now Hawaii are unlike anything we've ever seen before. They're being called forest fires and wildfires, but they are clearly something very different. These fires are burning homes into white powdery ash, footprint while leave, often leaving the surrounding green trees and, er, and shrubs practically untouched. That's amazing. In mm -hmm. extreme cases, forest fires can reach temperatures up to 1500 degrees Fahrenheit and the melting point of aluminum is 1220 degrees Fahrenheit. So it is possible for an extreme forest fire to melt aluminum. But there are cars with puddles of melted aluminum that were clearly not in the wildfire area. Like on a street away from anything that was burning, completely melted. These are unexplained anomalies. In the California wildfires of 2018, cars were randomly bursting into flames on the freeway with no surrounding fires. We've seen these same anomalies in New York City on September 11, 2001, and cars completely burned out with no explanation. In Maui, these unnatural fires spared the homes of the rich, like Oprah Winfrey, while burning the native homes of the working class. With precision, these fires destroyed the most envied and high-valued areas of Maui. For decades, directed energy weapons have been classified, but they have been on the public record for several years. Directed energy weapons, or DEWs, have the ability to burn homes with this sort of precision. But in order to be this precise, the area would have to be mapped out. In January of this year, green lasers were seen over Hawaii, which could best be described as geospatial array for mapping terrain. That's kind of interesting. We have seen that among the ashy ruins, there are blue-colored objects that have somehow survived the devastation. Blue cars, blue umbrellas, a boat, and blue planters. How interesting. Well, videos online are going viral that show how lasers can easily burn through certain colored objects, but objects that are colored blue remain unharmed. 
Directed energy weapons include lasers, millimeter wave, and microwave. They are all based on light frequencies and different wavelengths of light affect colors differently. For example, in laser tattoo removal, the different wavelengths are used for removing different colors. It it agitates the 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 color and breaks it up so it could be you know dissipated. Um, and and this is because the color is a quality of light, and each color has its own frequency. Interesting enough, the frequency of the color blue is six six six. I mean, you know, I think that's just a, a cherry on top to this whole uh, conspiracy. Uh, sorry, guys, I, I wasn't scrolling down where you could read along with me, but I was reading it for you. But how interesting that uh, we're seeing these houses that survived the Maui fires uh, were had blue paint. And the first post on, on here is really a great breakdown of why this is happening. And I would highly suggest if you're interested in investigating this further, go check out some of the links that are posted here. Um, they are destroying these cities so that they can buy them up for pennies on the dollar. Most will be impoverished or killed, and those left alive will be imprisoned in tiny areas while the wealthy have to the run of the place. So if they burn down these cities destroy the property value and buy it up on pennies of the dollar, they can turn in the area into these smart cities that we were talking about last week. Uh, all of this, the catastrophic lockdowns and deadly injections included, are geared towards maximizing death and pain while destroying economic, social, physical, and mental productive capital on a vast scale, all designed to lead directly to global dependence-based enslavement where you will eat the bugs and own nothing and be happy about it or else. I thought that was really well put, so I wanted to read that to you guys. Uh, what do you bugs. think about that, Jeremiah? Just more confirmation about these fires in Maui and, and what happened in California recently. I think it's uh, super interesting. And I mean, I don't even, I can't even think of a word for how crazy it is. I say crazy all the time, but it's like right in front of our faces, you know? It's like they're getting, they're, they're, less and less trying to hide it from us they're just doing it you know except yep. this guys you know <laughs> yeah. yeah it's uh it's it's really interesting to see where these fires are happening and how they're driving the migration of people in california you know there's so many people that started moving out west uh to uh well out you know I guess in California, as far west as you can get, but uh, people moving out uh, to Texas from California because of the draconian tax system and the, all the craziness uh, forcing people that vote blue to move out to Texas, you know, preparing possibly for this next election cycle. And, and also you see here uh, uh, Maui and the connection with some of these big, rich celebrity types wanting to transform the island but hold out some people that have transformed dilapidated homes into these beautiful high value properties being driven out by these fires so that now it can be turned into i guess what the uh the rich want it to be um so the new epstein uh, island <laughs> yeah hopefully not that terrible you know what i mean i hope not but yeah definitely if you guys are interested in this topic check out the video and the interview that we shared last week uh, with some people that actually lived on Maui sharing their personal opinion that it definitely was not a natural disaster. 
All right, Jeremiah. So that's all the news for this week, man. Hope that was interesting. All right, man. Thanks for another great current news as always. And now a quick promo of my mom's book, The Protocol That Kills. Kingsgate Media and Skiba News Nation present an exhaustive expose on government. The new amazing book, The Emotional and Disturbing True Story. Sheila Skiba. Following Rob Skiba's death, his widow, Sheila, and co-authors spent countless hours analyzing 40 days of recorded conversations, the transcripts of which appear in the book. This is an extremely well-written first-hand account of the horrors Sheila Skiba endured for the 40 days her husband was held captive in the hospital. It was hard to read and relive since I vividly remember when this was happening to this precious man. But I believe every person needs to know what was going on during the insanity of the pandemic. Sheila Skiba, the protocol that kills a true crime story. This book shares a wealth of critical insights that will greatly aid in preventing future needless losses of life. Available on Amazon. Order now. Find more at theprotocolthatkills.com. And as always, the links will be down in the description where you can get a copy of my mom's book and... You know what? It's about that time for an all-new Opus Corner. Take it away, Opa. My hut, der hat drei Ecken. Drei Ecken hat mein Hut. Und hat er nicht drei Ecken, dann ist es nicht mein Hut. Time for Opa's Corner. So let's start with some stories. A blonde walked into an electronics store and said to the salesman, I want that TV. The salesperson shook his head and said, No, we don't sell to blondes. So the blonde left and came back with her hair dyed brown and said, I'll take that TV. Again, the salesman said, No, we don't sell to blondes. So she left again and came back with a hat, a fake nose, and with her hair dyed black and said, I want that TV. But the salesman still said, Sorry, we don't sell to blondes. Finally, the blonde got fed up and said, That's it. How do you keep guessing I'm a blonde? Because that's a microwave. <laughs> a government employee sat in his office and out of boredom, decided to see what was inside his old filing cabinet. He poked through the contents and came across an old brass lamp he's never seen before. This will look good on my mantle, and took it home with him. While polishing the lamp, a genie suddenly appeared. Noble sir, you have three wishes you may ask of me. All right, said the government clerk. I would like an ice-cold Coke right now. He gets his Coke and drinks it. Now that he can think more clearly, he states his second wish. I wish that I was on an island with beautiful women who find me irresistible. Suddenly, he's on an island 
with gorgeous women eyeing him. He tells the genie his third and last wish. I wish I'd never have to work again. Instantly, he was back in his government office. <laughs> the children were lined up in the cafeteria of a Catholic primary school for lunch. At the head of the table was a large pile of apples. The nun made a note and posted on the apple tray. Take only one. God is watching. Moving further along the lunch line, at the other end of the table, was a large pile of chocolate chip cookies. One child whispered to another, Hey, we can take all we want. God is watching the apples. <laughs> A defendant in a lawsuit involving large sums of money was saying to his lawyer, If I lose this case, I'll be ruined. It's in the judge's hands now, said the lawyer. Would it help if I sent the judge a box of cigars? Oh no, this judge is a stickler for ethical behavior. A stunt like that would prejudice him against you. He might even find you in contempt of the court. In fact, you shouldn't even smile at the judge. I see. Good to know. Within the course of time, the judge rendered a decision in favor of the defendant. As the defendant left the courthouse, he said to his lawyer, Thanks for the tip about the cigars. I'm sure we would have lost the case if you had sent them. But I did send them. What? You did? Yes, that's how we won the case. I don't understand. It's easy. I sent the cheapest cigars that I could find to the judge but enclose the plaintiff's business card. <laughs> A husband and wife in their 60s were coming up on their 40th wedding anniversary. Knowing his wife loved antiques, he bought a beautiful old brass oil lamp for her. When she unwrapped it, <laughs> a genie appeared. The genie thanked them and gave them each one wish. The wife wished for an all-expenses-paid, first-class, round-the-world cruise with her husband. Shazam! Instantly, she was presented with tickets for the entire journey, plus expensive side trips, dinners, shopping, etc. The husband, however, wished he had a female companion who was 30 years younger. The genie smiled and shazam! He instantly turned 93 years old. <laughs>
A politician, three doctors, and three engineers decided to climb Mount Everest. They arrived there and started climbing the long way up the tallest climb on Earth. It was a grueling climb, and they had to stop many times to rest and pull each other up. Halfway into the climbing, the rope starts to break. The doctors say they should all hang on and wait for help. Nobody believed that help would arrive on time. The engineers, with their quick physics skills, tell everyone, one of us has to jump or else we all die. Nobody wanted to jump. Everyone held on to the rope with their hands tightly. Then the politician let out a sigh. <sighs> you people are valuable resources for the country. A doctor can save so many lives. An engineer can build so many innovative things. <laughs> but what am I? A useless politician. What do I do for society? Nothing. I just give speeches. <laughs> That's it. The others were so touched that they started clapping for the politician. <laughs> <laughs> A new business was opening, and one of the owner's friends wanted to send him flowers for the occasion. They arrived at the new business site, and the owner read the card, which said, Rest in peace. The owner was angry and called the florist to complain. After he had told the florist of the obvious mistake and how angry he was, the florist replied, Sir, I'm really sorry for the mistake, but rather than getting angry, you should imagine this. Somewhere, there's a funeral taking place today, and they have flowers with a note saying, Congratulations on your new location. <laughs> and now for... The funnies. <laughs> I want someone who will pay attention to me. Is that too much to ask? No, 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 no. Don't tell me. You lost weight. Uh, you cut your hair. Wait, wait. Did you used to wear glasses? <laughs> I guess I owe you an apology. I assumed it was you who squealed on me. I hate meeting guys online. <laughs> Dad, how did people come to exist? 
Adam and Eve made babies. Then they became adults and made babies and so on. Mom, how did people come about? We were monkeys and then we evolved into what we are now. Dad, I just talked to Mom. You lied to me. No, your mom was talking about her side of the family. <laughs> I don't know, Gary. They're not digital. It appears we're in some sort of undeveloped country. <laughs> Passengers must empty pockets. <laughs> it's just a sallow little stream, you said. It doesn't empty into the ocean, you said. Go ahead, cross it, you said. <laughs> Installation errors of the Old West. Dang it all, Buck. Now this time, I'll hold down the bottom and you push the top. <laughs> I don't trust coffee that requires ten or more words to order. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> Five hours into the Sloth family road trip. Are we a fraction of the way there yet? What brings you in today, Mr. Glass? Well, Doc, some days I feel half empty, other days I feel half full. <laughs> Cinderella's night goes from bad to worse. No parking, 12 a.m. to 6 a.m. <laughs> What gives people feelings of power? Money? Status? Call on your dachshunds and they will actually come. <laughs> so, what did you learn on your first day of school? Not enough. I have to go back tomorrow. <laughs> Their reunion was both brief and awkward, each still bearing the wounds from that ugly Jane incident. Cheetah? Tarzan? <laughs> Dill Billies. See him around? Uh, I think we're safe to drink. Boy, I'd like to find this dog's food bowl. 
I specifically told you to book a cruise with Carnival. But you just had to go with Viking. <laughs> Mom, I think you're carrying us too much. <laughs> Look, I gotta run, then stop, then run, then run and stop, then barely avoid getting hit by a car. <laughs> 82 bales of hay in the barn, 82 bales of hay, you take one down, pass it around, that's enough, Stuart. <laughs> no, no, no. Now, try it again. Remember, this is our one and only ticket out of here. <laughs> well, there is some irony in all this, you know. I mean, we both lose the contact at the same time? <laughs> well, the defendant and I made this deal in which we both prospered. You know, one of those you scratch me behind the ears and I'll scratch you behind yours arrangements. <laughs> Just so's you sees we ain't such bad guys, Louie. We gave you a flipper on one foot so's you has a fighting chance. <laughs> All this time you've been able to go home whenever you desired. Just click your heels together and repeat after me. <laughs> I told him, Norman, forget that woman. She's no good for you. I need you to run the Bates Motel. Norman, are you listening to your mother? Talk about psycho. <laughs> <laughs> this game is called Media Facts Checkers. How does it work? I cheat, then tell everyone you're a liar. <laughs> I often wonder who Pete is, and why we do things for his sake. <laughs> and that concludes another Opa's Corner for this week. My Hut, der hat drei Ecken, drei Ecken hat mein Hut, und hat er nicht drei Ecken, da 
Opa's Corner is now available on my own YouTube channel. Like, share, and subscribe. Opa, thank you for another great Opa's Corner as always. Now we're from our friend and sponsor, JJ. Are you tired of living in constant pain? Do you feel like you've tried every CBD product on the market with no relief? Look no further than JJ's Natural CBD Rub. When I was diagnosed with degenerative disc disease, this was the only product that completely took my pain away. Working with JJ has been a dream come true, and his products have completely changed my life. Don't just take my word for it. Visit JJ's website, jjcbdrub.com and read hundreds of testimonials from people whose lives have been changed by all of JJ's amazing products. And now, as a Skiba News Nation exclusive, you can get $50 off a three-pack special of JJ's Natural CBD Rub by texting CBD to 920-382-7720. Don't suffer in silence any longer. Take control of your pain today with JJ's Natural CBD Rub. Again, text CBD to 920-382-7720 for an exclusive discount and start feeling the relief you deserve. The links are in the description below. Thank you, JJ. I gotta hang out with JJ, Jeremiah. Oh yeah. How yeah, was it? Yeah, the Bertari times best, man. It was so great getting to see him, and we we were chatting it up like the whole festival, man. JJ is awesome. Yeah, I saw y'all pop. JJ. Yeah, y'all y'all popped up in the in the live chat, and y'all were both at the festival. So I I saw that. All right, well it's time for some mystery. So I put out a poll and you guys voted for this topic. So today we're going to be talking about the Clinton hit list. Quick disclaimer, before we play the first clip, I just want to say I would never unalive myself. And if I die suspiciously, Jake, Opa, and all you viewers at home, look into my death. <laughs> all right. With that being said, I'm going to show you a short preview kind of of what the basics of people know about the, the Clinton hit list before we do a really big deep dive into it. So let's check out this first clip. It was another quiet Sunday evening in the summer of 1997 in Washington, D.C. 24-year-old Mary Mohan was busy closing up the Starbucks where she worked when a last-minute customer walked through the door. The man seemed nervous as he approached the counter, both his hands in his pockets, and that's when he pulled out a gun. It took Mary and her co-workers a few seconds to realize what was happening, but once they did, panic set in. Trying to escape and call for help, Mary rushed into the back of the store. The man with the gun followed. In the chaos of the next few minutes, all three Starbucks employees would end up dead, shot execution style in the backs of their heads. No one would discover their bodies until the next morning, and once they did, the man with the gun was long gone. The police called it a robbery gone wrong, but over the next few months, the case would take a lot of strange turns. First, the police announced that nothing had been taken from the store or the cash register. Whoever was responsible had walked in, shot all three employees dead, and then walked right out taking nothing with them. Either this person was a terrible thief, or there was a different motive afoot. But for some reason, the police had already latched onto the robbery gone wrong angle, so that was the story they stuck with. Eventually, DC police came up with a suspect, a man named Carl Cooper. They were convinced Cooper was the one responsible for the robbery and murders. All they had to do was break him, and that's exactly what they did. Over the next two days, police interrogated Carl Cooper for 54 hours straight. For context, police can usually get a false confession out of someone after just 16 hours of interrogation. She did! 
She did it! She's the one you want! Carl Cooper was interrogated for more than three times that. It didn't matter that the police had no solid witnesses or evidence against Carl Cooper, or that it made no sense that nothing happened taken from the store if it was a robbery. The cops believed that they had their man, so they kept pushing. And a lot can happen in 54 hours. People can be convinced of a lot in 54 hours as well. And so after 54 hours of interrogation, Carl Cooper confessed to everything. He confessed that he had gone into the Starbucks to rob it, and when Mary Mohan wouldn't give him the keys to the safe, he shot her and the two other employees point blank. To most of the public, his confession made sense. He was just another guy from a low-income neighborhood looking to make a quick buck. But for other people, something didn't feel right. It didn't feel like just another straightforward robbery. And that's when Carl Cooper did something totally unexpected. He took back his confession. He recanted everything that he had said, saying that the police had coerced him into giving a false confession. But that didn't matter. To the police, the case was closed. And in the year 2000, Carl Cooper was sentenced to life in prison without parole. And within just a few months, the story of Mary Mohane's murder had disappeared from everyone's minds. But some people didn't forget. Some people started to connect the dots to who Mary Mohane really was. You see, Mary Mohane was not just another Starbucks employee. Before she had gotten a job at the DC Starbucks, she had worked as an intern for none other than President Bill Clinton. And she died right around the time rumors have been spreading that a particular White House intern was about to go public with a sexual harassment story involving Bill Clinton. A lot of people assumed that this intern was Mary, which meant that a lot of powerful people wanted Mary to disappear. That combined with Carl Cooper taking back his confession, but no one would ever look deeper into the death of Mary Mohane. Because within just a few months of her death, a little old story about Monica Lewinsky broke. The president speaks forcefully with his most emphatic denial yet of sex and lies in the Monica Lewinsky case. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. It becomes clear he wasn't always telling the truth. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Miss Lewinsky that was not appropriate. All the attention went to that, and everyone quickly forgot about poor old Mary Mohane. The scandal turned Monica Lewinsky into one of the most famous women on the planet. But what the masses didn't know was that Monica Lewinsky was far from the only woman. Long before Monica Lewinsky, several other women also accused Bill Clinton of sexual harassment. But unlike Monica Lewinsky, many of these women would not make it out alive. Take Paula Jones, for example. In 1994, she sued President Bill Clinton for sexual harassment. According to Paula, while Bill was still governor of Arkansas, Billa asked Paula to meet him in his hotel room, where he didn't just ask her to sleep with him, but Bill Clinton exposed himself to her as well. May of 91, Bill Clinton harassed me on the job and then basically told me, let's keep this between ourselves. I just pretended that it didn't happen because who would believe me? Over the next few years, Clinton approached her again and again. And when she continued to reject him, she eventually got transferred to another job as punishments. For the Clinton administration, Paula Jones's lawsuit was a publicity nightmare. Not only did it look bad that a president apparently couldn't keep his clothes on, but sexual harassment was also a very real serious crime. If Clinton lost the case, it could mean the end of his presidency and his legacy would be forever tarnished. But lucky for Bill, Paula Jones was just one insignificant woman, and he was the president of the United States. It would be his word against hers. And who was the public going to believe? The leader of the free world or some low-level female government employee who was obviously just in it for the money? So that's exactly what Bill told the public. Obviously, all Paula Jones wanted was fame and a payday. He even had a witness to prove it, a man named Danny Ferguson. In 1991, trooper Danny Ferguson had been in charge of one of Bill Clinton's security teams. According to him, it was Paula who initiated everything. It was Paula who was making the advances on Bill, and Bill Clinton wanted nothing to do with her. It seemed like Paula was about to lose her case, and that's when Paula made a bold move. She went on to include Danny Ferguson in her lawsuit against Bill Clinton, alleging that he was the one who invited her up to Clinton's room. And so, less than a week later, Danny's ex-wife Kathy Ferguson shot herself in the head. If anyone had known whether or not Danny was telling the truth, it would have been his wife. 
but luckily for Bill Clinton, no one would ever have the chance to find out. According to the police, Kathy had shot herself because of her relationship with her new boyfriend, but it didn't take long for people to get suspicious. If Kathy wanted to kill herself, why would she have packed herself into suitcases as if she was going to travel somewhere? Kathy had been a young, healthy, positive woman. No one who knew her could believe that she would kill herself. So if she didn't kill herself, then who did and why? Could it have been because she had first-hand knowledge of how Bill Clinton asked her ex-husband to bring him women to sleep with? No one would ever be able to find out. By 1997, two women had died in the space of a few years who were both linked to sexual harassment claims against Bill Clinton. But nothing to see here. Kathy Ferguson just killed herself. Mary Mohan was just another robbery victim. But the disturbing part is that these two deaths are just the tip of the iceberg. In a span of around three decades, more than 50 people connected to the Clintons have died. And these are not just random people. These are people who had the power to ruin the public image of the Clintons. These are people that could have linked the Clintons to scandals. And magically, all of them are dead. And they didn't die from natural causes, mind you. Oh no, each of these 50 people all died in one of the three ways. They either died by suicide, plane crash, or a robbery gone wrong. According to the media, all these deaths are nothing more than a sad coincidence. But after more than 50 people all dying from suicide, plane crash, or a robbery gone wrong, it is one hell of a coincidence, don't you think? So most people know that part of the conspiracy. So for this next clip, I call it the beginning. So this is kind of when, you know, all these suspicious things started happening and people started unaliving themselves. And that's a YouTube friendly for a certain word. So, so let's play that clip. origins of the Clintons killing I mean suicide spree can be traced back to long before Bill was elected president. It all started back in the 1970s when Bill had just been elected governor of Arkansas and Hillary was working at the Rose Law Firm. As governor, Bill had a certain image that he wanted to project and to project that image, him and Hillary had to find a way to make a lot more money because there was no way his measly government salary and the little money Hillary made as an associate lawyer was going to cut it. And that's when they met James and Susan McDougall. Like the Clintons, the McDougals were also looking to make a quick buck, and they already had a plan to make it happen. A real estate development venture. Together, the Clintons and the McDougals would buy up 230 acres of land in the Ozark Mountains for what would become known as the Whitewater Development Corporation. The two couples would invest their money into building and selling vacation homes to people interested in the outdoors and nature. And for a short while, it seemed like their plan would work. But just as Bill and Hillary began pouring their money into the project, things went horribly wrong. First, the land started flooding due to heavy rain, and once the rain ended, no one really showed interest in the homes they were going to build because it was nearly impossible to reach by car. So within just a few years, the Whitewater Development Corporation went under, and the Clintons and the McDougals went their separate ways, or so they claimed. Because in 1992, while Bill was still running for president, a massive scandal broke. You see, after his Whitewater plan had failed, James McDougal had switched to the banking industry and opened up a bank called Madison Guarantee Savings and Loans in the 1980s. But just like the Whitewater project, Madison Guarantee also ended in disaster just a few years later, costing the government more than $73 million in insurance payouts, which meant that suddenly the US government was also very interested in James McDougal and his failing businesses. And surprisingly enough, their investigation led them right back to the Clintons. 
According to the allegations, Bill Clinton had tried using his position as governor to force the president of a small investment firm to give the failing Whitewater Development Corporation a loan. Or in other words, Bill Clinton was abusing his power to prop up his business. Let's turn to Whitewater. This week, the uh, Whitewater Special Prosecutor, Mr. Starr, got a federal judge to extend the life of that uh, grand jury uh, looking into the Whitewater case. He says there's extensive uh, evidence of obstruction of justice. Uh, if, as you say, there is nothing there, Mr. President, how can so many reputable, respected professionals keep pressing on with this? Well, that's your characterization, not mine. You don't uh, think Mr. Starr is, is a reputable person? No, I didn't say that. I said that was your characterization. Well, this thing's been going on for over three years. Tens of millions of dollars have been spent. And there have been, by the way, two federal reports by independent agencies saying that what I said and what my wife said in the very beginning of this was true, that we were not involved in running the savings and loan, that we lost money on a real estate deal, and that this whole inquiry is, is going after two people who lost money on a real estate deal made almost 19 years ago now. And that's what this whole thing has been about. So all I can do is keep smiling, keep cooperating, and answering the questions that are asked of me and spending my time being president. But, uh, you know, the, uh, the American people can reach their own conclusions about whether this has been worth the money that's been spent on it or the time that's being drug out on it. But I, I have told the truth. I will continue to tell the truth. That's all I can do. Well, you, you suggested one time that maybe Mr. Starr was out to get you. Do you think that's what's going on here? I don't have anything to add to what I've already said. I don't want to make any news on Whitewater. I want to make news as president. I want to, I'm sick. and There are too many people in Washington, D.C. that spend all their time trying to destroy each other and not enough time trying to build up the American people. I'm going to spend my time trying to do the American people's business. To make things even messier, James McDougall later hired Hillary's Rose Law Firm to represent Madison Guarantee as a favor to Governor Bill Clinton. Clear from the story that from 1987 to 1992, when they finally got out of the investment, it was essentially being managed by Hillary Clinton. And this at a time she was negotiating bank loans, submitting financial disclosure statements, at a time when the bank holding these loans was negotiating with the governor to get legislation it wanted uh, to a uh, favorable legislation in the state. This on the face of it is just a blatant appearance of a conflict of interest in my view. As part of her work, Hillary represented Madison Guarantee in front of the state securities departments, headed by a lawyer who also used to work for the bank, who was directly appointed to the job by Bill Clinton. The article claims McDougal subsidized the corporation with money from his savings and loan, quote, ensuring that the Clintons were under little financial risk. As it turned out, the Clintons lost money and the corporation is no longer active. The deal raises questions, according to the Times, because after McDougal's savings and loan became insolvent and faced a possible shutdown by the state, Governor Clinton appointed a new state securities commissioner. The Times says the new commissioner then approved a plan to keep the business alive, a plan proposed by Clinton's wife, Hillary, whose law firm had been hired to represent the savings and loan. The questions raised by the article are whether a governor should be involved in a venture with the owner of a business regulated by the state, and whether the governor's wife should get legal fees for work done for that business. Last night, Clinton was asked about his dealings with McDougal. Well, I've known him for 25 years. In the late 70s, he asked my wife and I if we would, were interested in entering a land deal with him. We were in it. We never made any money out of it. We lost a lot of money in it, and we spent the last few years trying to get the records cleaned up to make sure at least they were in order. It was a hot mess of crony capitalism and corruption. And thanks to all this corruption, Hillary and Bill Clinton managed to keep Madison Guarantee open far longer than it would have survived on its own. And as a thank you for the support, James McDougall held a fundraiser for Bill Clinton's election campaign. So when the feds finally started picking up that something fishy was happening with Madison Guarantee, the Clintons suddenly had a lot to worry about. If the public found out they had broken the rules to help their friends stay in business, their political careers would take a major hit. Today, uh, we issue the final report of the Whitewater Committee. After 14 months of work, 52 hearings, and taking testimony from more than 260 witnesses, we have discovered a very troubling and continuing pattern of the abuse of power. And each time an abuse is revealed, the White House delivers excuses. 
memory lapses and change stories. Time and time again, the White House seems unable to give the American people the truth on the first or even the second try. Throughout our hearings, this disturbing pattern was seen again and again. They needed to make sure James and Susan McDougal kept their mouths shut, and that wouldn't be an easy task. At first, James McDougal refused to say a word about Bill Clinton's involvement and all the illegal business practices he carried out. Not even Susan McDougal, his wife, would say whether or not the Clintons had known what was going on. But then the court found James McDougal guilty on several counts, so suddenly he wasn't going to keep his mouth shut anymore. According to him, Bill and Hillary had known and participated in all the shady deals in both Madison Guarantee and Whitewater. Even worse, Bill Clinton had actually lied under oath, and Bill Clinton had promised to pardon Susan if they wouldn't snitch on him. And if that wasn't bad enough, Susan and Bill also had an affair, so things were starting to heat up for the Clintons. James McDougal was about to spill it all. But lucky for the Clintons, James McDougal suddenly dies in 1998, just before he was about to fully cooperate with the prosecution and turn against the Clintons. The official cause of death was a heart attack. It made sense. James McDougal had a history of artery disease. He was a pretty old guy. The stress of the trial and being in jail must have been too much for him. Nothing suspicious to see here. If it happened at the perfect time to prevent him from saying anything about the Clintons, well, that was just a mere coincidence. But James McDougal wasn't the only person associated with these scandals that died. Just a few years earlier, one of the main investigators of the Whitewater and Madison Guarantee scandals, an investigator named John Parnell Walker, had conveniently committed suicide by jumping off his apartment balcony right in the middle of his investigation. So now with James McDougal gone, the only loose end left was Susan. But even with her husband gone and facing years of jail time, she refused to tell the truth. She refused to say anything in front of a jury, and she would spend the next few years in and out of jail. But lucky for Susan, her loyalty was rewarded. Because just a few hours before the end of his presidency in 2001, Bill Clinton granted her a full presidential pardon, just as he had promised James if he would have kept quiet. By now, the Clintons had their first taste of real power that came attached with the presidency, and pretty soon they would find yet another reason to use that power to get rid of yet another one of their little problems. Now, let's get into the forged letters, which just kept adding fuel to the fire of conspiracy and started turning into facts, so check this out. This is Vince Foster. Growing up, Vince and Bill Clinton lived across the street from each other and became close childhood friends. Later, he was also the guy who hired Hillary Clinton to join the Rose Law Firm where he worked. Because of their long history together, Bill had a lot of trust in Vince Foster as a lawyer and friend, which is why Vince was often the guy Bill turned to to help him out with legal issues like the Whitewater scandal and Madison Guarantee. Vince had proven his loyalty to Bill over and over again. So when Bill eventually became president of the US, he wanted to surround himself with very friendly faces in the White House, people he knew and trusted. And who better for the job than Vince Foster, the childhood friend who stood by and helped the Clintons all those years in Arkansas. So Bill appointed Foster as his deputy White House counsel. Basically, Foster was there to give President Clinton legal advice. So as deputy counsel, Foster knew everything that happened in the White House. And as Bill Clinton's close friend and advisor, he probably knew everything happening in the Clintons' private lives as well, which wouldn't have been an issue if he simply kept his mouth shut. But there was a problem. Unlike the Clintons, Vince Foster was a pretty honest, straightforward guy. Anyone who knew him knew he was struggling with all the lies and backstabbing that was all too common in politics. Dealing with the fallout of the Whitewater and Madison Guarantee investigations had been stressful enough for him. But then just months into Bill's presidency, and the Clintons managed to get into trouble again. This time, it involved the White House Travel Office. Apparently, Bill and Hillary Clinton had felt the employees of the White House Travel Office were not loyal enough to them and needed to be fired. 
But instead of just coming out and saying that I don't like you, you're fired, the Clintons felt that it would be better for their public image if they had a good reason to fire all of them. So they got the FBI to dig into the travel office, looking for any possible evidence of wrongdoing to fire them. You're fired! All the FBI could come up with was that there had been a few financial problems with the office during previous administrations, but that was all the Clintons needed. They fired seven employees and replaced them with friends and campaign donors. But when word got out about this, the public was outraged. Here were senior White House officials, maybe even the Clintons themselves, pressuring the FBI into investigating a department that they had no reason to suspect a crime was afoot. Even though he was president of the US, Bill Clinton wasn't above the law, so why was his administration pressuring the FBI into cases for their own benefits? It would be the first of many ethics controversies in the Clinton administration, and as deputy counsel, Vince Foster was front and center of all of it. As White House Deputy Counsel, your job is to make sure everything the president does is legal and ethical. So if that's the case, why did Vince Foster let the Clintons do this? It was horribly unethical. Didn't he know better? So suddenly, all the blame shifted onto Vince Foster, which made a nice stand-up guy like Foster very uncomfortable. He already had to defend the Clintons over the Whitewater and Madison Guarantee scandals, where he knew something fishy was going on. Now he had to take the blame for the travel office controversy too? It was too much. The stress was making him sick. Every day, he would spend hours outlining his case in a notebook, reviewing the facts and then rewriting it all over again. He was desperately looking for a way to protect the Clintons, while keeping himself out of trouble, while also trying to find a way to live with himself. But it just wasn't possible. He was possibly going to get called to Congress soon, which meant that he was going to have to lie under oath too. It was all too much. The good man and Vince Foster knew that it was time to come clean, but for the Clintons, that was just not an option. On July 20th, 1993, Vince Foster was found dead in a park outside of Washington, D.C. The official cause of death? He has shot himself in the mouth with a revolver. Another suicide in the books. What was strange was that almost immediately after the discovery, long before the police even confirmed it was a suicide, the media began writing about how Vince Foster had been severely depressed, how his family had known something was wrong, and that this was just an inevitable result of a mentally ill person owning a gun. Good afternoon. I have just met with the White House staff to basically talk with them a little bit about the death of my friend of 42 years, Vince Foster. It is an immense personal loss to, to me and to Hillary and to many of his close friends here, and a great loss to the White House and to the country. As I tried to explain, especially to the young people on the staff, that there is really no way to know why these things happen. No one bothered to mention the fact that a file on the Whitewater scandal went missing from his office the night he died, or that that same file mysteriously reappeared two years later and magically cleared Hillary Clinton of any wrongdoing. No one wrote about the fact that Bernard Nussbaum, President Clinton's counsel and Foster's direct superior, had blocked the police from accessing Foster's office, or that he had told White House lawyers to sit in on police interviews with potential witnesses. Look at that. After last summer's hearings, both the majority and the minority reports concluded, and I want to emphasize this, that the evidence overwhelmingly supported the Park Police's conclusion that Mr. Foster died of a self-inflicted wound. To the best of my recollection, I explained to him that uh, the office would need to be closed up so that uh, we could go through it the next day to look for a suicide note or evidence that would confirm the suicide. And how did he respond to you? He seemed to understand what I was asking him and, you know, like I said earlier, I do not remember what his exact words were, but he acknowledged that it would be done. You, but the Park Police investigating team was allowed in Mr. Foster's office, but you were not allowed to look at anything. Is that, that correct? Is, that is correct. That's correct. Uh, in other words, Mr. Nussbaum, in his infinite wisdom, controlled what was what in the office, what you could do. That is correct. Uh, so this investigation, would you consider it initial part of like a sham? Pardon me, sir? Was it a sham of an investigation then? I wouldn't call it a sham, but I would say that it, we would have liked would to Would you look call it an investigation? 
We would have liked to have looked at those documents and some of those documents ourselves. It was totally an incomplete investigation, Mike. Yes, it was. Thank you. Thank you for yielding, sir. Even worse, no one seemed to care that Bernard Nussbaum's aide discovered a torn up resignation letter in Foster's briefcase six days after his death, and that it took them nearly 30 hours after discovering the notes to finally hand it over to the cops. Curiously, White House counsel Bernard Nussbaum had earlier inspected the contents of the briefcase but didn't find the note. This led to widespread skepticism concerning the document's authenticity. As soon as the note was discovered, the media jumped on the chance to run the depressed suicidal storyline even further. According to them, what Foster wrote in his note proved just how hopeless he really was before any at all. Obviously, this was just a case of an unhappy, mentally ill man sadly taking his own life, nothing more. Or was it? Soon after discovering the notes, two expert investigators and an Oxford University manuscript expert agreed that the note was nothing more than a forgery. The experts believe that the forger studied an existing document handwritten by Vince Foster my favorite and then copied show. his writing style letter by letter. Ronald Rice, a handwriting examiner who has worked for the state of Massachusetts, is convinced that the note Not was forged. Document. If we compare the formation of the cursive capital I here on the question document to the formation of the capital I here on the known document authored by Mr. Foster, we can plainly see it is not the same. It's an entirely different letter formation. Rice went on to describe other discrepancies. For example, in the suicide note, the letter O is open. By contrast, in the known samples, it is closed. In addition, Rice claims that the letter B in the note was made with at least four strokes of the pen. In the known sample, he says the letter was written with one continuous stroke. Rice says he discovered numerous discrepancies, which proved to him that the suicide note was not written by Vince Foster. But can the differences be explained? Perhaps by stress, the stress of a man about to kill himself. These experts give no credence to the argument. Your handwriting would not change because you were under that type of stress. It might get a little sloppier, it might get a little less clear, but your, your style of writing normally would not change. Not only had Vince Foster never written the notes, but there was also no fingerprints to be found on the paper, only one smudged palm print belonging to none other than Bernard Nussbaum. Suddenly, the idea that Vince Foster had killed himself began to seem a little hard to believe. But then, just as the public started questioning the official suicide story, the FBI came to the rescue once more, just like they did with the travel office scandal. According to them, three different analyses done on the suicide note had confirmed without a doubt that it was indeed Vince Foster who wrote it. And what the FBI says, the public must believe. The FBI said it was a suicide, so it was a suicide. And anyone who said otherwise was just a conspiracy theorist. Case closed. The Clintons had gone out of Whitewater, Madison Guarantee, and the travel office scandal scot-free, with every last loose end conveniently taken care of. But bending and breaking the rules is addictive, and soon they would be back in trouble again, looking for a way out. So, feds haven't changed one bit, have they? So, was that a coincidence? I don't think so. This next clip, we're going to be talking about the main ways the Clintons controlled and were controlled, and that's the art of the blackmail. So, let's check out the art of the blackmail. In the town of Little Rock, Arkansas, one man was taking the news of Vince Foster's suicide very badly. That man was Jerry Parks, a private investigator and owner of a small private security company. Jerry Parks had also worked for Bill Clinton during his presidential campaign starting in 1991. According to Jerry's son, his father had seen the news of Vince Foster's death and immediately told his son that he was a marked man. And he wasn't wrong. On the evening of September 26, 1993, as Jerry Parks was driving up to a quiet intersection outside town, a car pulled up beside his, and that driver opened fire on him, killing Jerry Parks instantly before speeding off. 
According to local police, it looked like a professional assassination. But why? Why would anyone want this small-time man dead? What could he have possibly known that would make people want him dead? As it turns out, Jerry Parks knew quite a lot. He had once told his son that he had built up a file on Clinton's dirty deals and mistresses while he was governor. His son had even gone with him on a few stakeouts of the homes of the women Bill Clinton would visit late at nights. According to Jerry's son, he believed his father was using that file to blackmail Clinton's presidential campaign. According to Jerry, Vince Foster had also known about that file and what it contained, which is why his suicide made Jerry panic. He believed Vince Foster had been killed for whatever that blackmail file contained, which meant that Jerry Parks was next on the chopping block, and it didn't take long for him to be proven right. Just days after Foster's suicide, Jerry Parks' home was broken into, and that file was stolen. Two months later, Jerry Parks was dead. If there had been any evidence to prove Clinton was dirty, it was all gone now. To this day, Jerry Parks' murder remains unsolved, but that doesn't mean people don't have theories about who was responsible. In 1994, Jerry's wife Jane Parks went to a high-level state police official she knew from church for help. He told her that her husband's murder had been carried out by friends of Buddy Young, the ex-chief of Bill Clinton's security team while he was governor, and there was nothing she could do about it. If the list of dead people close to the Clintons ended here, we could totally understand that maybe, just maybe, all of this really was just a tragic coincidence. But the death of Jerry Parks was far from the last. Within the next few years, dozens of Clinton's fundraisers, bodyguards, and alleged mistresses would end up dead. Each of these people either killed themselves, were murdered, or died in a plane crash. And each death happened under strange, suspicious, and unexplained circumstances. Just take Commerce Secretary Ron Brown as another example. As one of the highest-ranking African-American members of government in the 90s, Ron Brown was a celebrated, well-known politician. He was also responsible for handing out favors to major donors of the Democratic Party. At the time of his death, Ron Brown was being investigated for taking rich Democrat donors on important trips so that their businesses could benefit. At one point, a man named Bernard Schwartz had donated $100,000 to the Democratic National Committee. In exchange, Ron took him along on a trip to China, where Bernard's company had the chance to win a billion dollars in Chinese contracts. Which meant that if investigators could prove that the president's commerce secretary was pretty much taking bribes, it would be yet another massive scandal for the Clinton presidency. So Ron Brown had to be kept quiet. And with so many unexpected deaths and suicides already under their belts, what's one more gonna do? So on Wednesday, April 3rd, 1996, right after Ron Brown announced that he was willing to cooperate with investigators, he was killed in a U.S. military plane crash in Croatia, along with 34 others. At first, it could easily be explained away as just another sad coincidence. Did anyone really believe that the Clintons were willing to crash a plane, killing 34 innocent people, just so they can get rid of one man? But then new evidence started emerging, and things started looking a little strange. While examining Ron's body, pathologists discovered an apparent gunshot wound in the top of his head. The source of the wound was never investigated. They just assumed he must have hit his head during the crash. Then, less than a week later, the airport maintenance chief in charge of guiding Ron Brown's plane when it crashed committed suicide. And so, all the loose ends were once again tied. Over and over again, men and women with dirt on the Clintons would end up dead. And strangely enough, most of these suspicious deaths ended the moment Bill Clinton left the White House in 2001. And for more than a decade, it seemed like these suspicious deaths had finally come to an end. But then in 2019, something happened that brought these unusual suicides back into the spotlights. And it all started with the arrest of one man, Mr. Jeffrey Epstein. A lot of people wanted Epstein dead. Les Wexner, Prince Andrews, Bill Gates, and pretty much everyone else who was involved in his alleged trafficking of minors. So when Epstein did kill himself, it didn't take long for the rumors to start flying. And one of the biggest speculations was that the Clintons did it. Even though Bill Clinton had worked very hard to make his connection to Jeffrey Epstein seem insignificant, the two were probably a lot closer than they let on. According to public flight records, President Clinton took at least 26 flights on Epstein's famous Lolita Express jets. At least some of those flights were from the US to Africa, where Clinton and Epstein flew to discuss economic development and the fight against HIV and AIDS. According to Bill Clinton, 
Jeffrey Epstein was a generous, stand-up guy looking to make a difference in the world. They had worked together on a few projects but were never really that close of friends. And Bill had definitely never visited Epstein's notorious private island either. But as usual, it didn't take long for the public to find out Bill Clinton hadn't been 100% honest when he described his connection with Epstein. According to Virginia Jufri, one of the girls Epstein groomed and trafficked out to his rich friends, she has seen Bill Clinton on Epstein's island with two girls who had been flown in from New York. When Virginia asked Epstein what Bill was doing on the island, the only answer she got was that Bill Clinton quote, owed him a favor, end quote. Ah yes, the President of the United States owed Epstein a favor. Why do you think Epstein had that giant painting of Bill Clinton in a dress in his foyer? Dude. Do you know that picture? Yeah. That painting? Epstein's taste in art was not great. Like, if you look at the Yo, shit- that was great. That painting is like, I got you, bitch. That's what that is. Oh, right. You got a president who was on the flight logs 26 times with Epstein, and you got that guy in a- dress in your house okay i'm you, dumb i'm sorry dude i'm officially dumb because i've known about that picture and i've just been like why would anybody want a that picture that is i got you bitch that's just a like hey yeah that's i got you bitch that is terrifying that's terrifying imagine if i knew some horrible dark secrets about you and you came over my house and i have a giant painting of you right when you walk into the front door yeah of you in a dress yeah and i'm like hey buddy hi welcome yeah you're right Fucking terrifying that would be? That's terrifying. You know he knows about it. I mean, you walk right in and bam, there's that painting. And now you kind of control a president. Holy shit. Holy shit. It's well, that, that's crazy. All, 100% what they were doing. Which makes you wonder, was Epstein aware of this tendency for those around the Clintons to end up dead? Which is where a guy named Mark Middleton comes into the picture. Mark Middleton was one of Bill Clinton's former advisors, who has signed Epstein into the White House seven times out of the 17 times he visited during Bill's presidency. He had flown on Epstein's jet with Bill Clinton several times, so if anyone knew just how close Clinton and Epstein were, it would have been Mark. But luckily for the Clintons, no one would ever have the chance to ask him. That's because two years after Epstein killed himself, Mark Middleton drove out to a ranch 30 miles from his home. He then pulled a bench under a tree, tied an electrical cord around his neck into the tree, before finally shooting himself in the chest with a shotgun. The gun was only found later more than 30 feet away from his body. Not 30 exactly feet away. a textbook suicide. But to the police, that's exactly what it was. And just like every <laughs> other suicide in this video, the media were quick to report about just how sad and depressed Mark was before taking his own life. So that's just crazy to me. But for this last clip of our Clinton hit list deep dive, we're going to be talking about the man who escaped the Clinton hit list. And yes, I'm referring to the infamous politician and all around pervert, Anthony Weiner. So let's play that clip. This is Anthony Weiner, a former congressman who had a little bit of a falling out. It's been quite a few weeks. Uh, we're going to get to the very latest now on the fallout from this uh, prolonged Anthony Weiner scandal. The Democratic congressman from Brooklyn announced he will resign on Thursday. It came 10 days after admitting that he sent lewd messages and photos to women. So Anthony Weiner's campaign manager has quit after those new revelations that Weiner's sexting continued even as he plotted his comeback run for mayor. Mr. Weiner over here is very close with the Clintons. He married Hillary Clinton's very close personal aide, with Bill Clinton officiating the wedding. And when you're that deep with the Clintons, you gotta know what they're willing to do to protect their reputation. Weiner went on the PBD podcast, where he was confronted with his reputation for sexting underage girls, and this was his reaction. You have a reputation whether you like it or not. What's your reputation? Your reputation is you like to text underage girls, and you like to talk to girls, and you sending pictures of your dangling. That's your reputation. Whatever you do, you can't do anything about it. Adam has a reputation. Adam is a playboy in Miami. You better get back to that you, list of strangers oh, uh, you trust read a list me, of. I'm getting back to it. Silence. Didn't even try to deny it. 
But when Wiener was confronted with the Clinton kill list, this was his immediate reaction. You were asking me the question, pick one name I and will. then tell me. Pull up Vince Foster if you want. No, go, Vince go. Foster, that suicide has been investigated 50 times. Pull yeah. up some one of the obscure names you pulled. Yeah, you, Why did you pull Ron Brown? Here, let me read Ron Brown. Ron Brown, a commerce secretary who, who a plane crashed while he was on a humanitarian mission, crashed on the side of a mountain. So what do you want to know about Ron Brown? What do you can, want to know about Ron I, can, Brown? Can you let me ask the question? No, I, I, listen, this Wait, is a conversation. You, no, no, no. We're having a conversation. I'm sorry, I'm the host. You invite yeah. me to your podcast, you get to ask the question. I, I'm, I'm the host. This is what I'm going to ask you the question. You haven't let me answer the question. I didn't see Your reaction is already an answer. I know. I am infuriated by people I who drag other people's you name who are powerless. You're not powerless. Hillary Clinton is powerless? No, these people. Hillary Clinton is these powerless. People. That's the problem. These people. Hillary's the problem. You read a list of people because you have the power people. to do it. People who do that are bullies and I don't do, appreciate bullies. I have the power to do what? You do. To read to a list what? of some strangers' names. I have the power to names. use the DOJ and other things to control That's not things. DOJ. Yeah. DOJ me, didn't make this let list. Let me finish up some my question. Some jackass made a list in his basement. You're reading their names as if they're incriminating in some way. That's bullying and I don't appreciate And I stand up against bullies. Please do so. He hasn't even asked the question yet, reading a list and he's refused and now he says let's move on no no because i expect your answer nobody already. has said he has and in that moment mr wiener might have just saved his own life you were very eloquent on the way you defended hillary clinton on who she was when it comes down to politics do you think she's a good person i do up until today there is no definitive proof that hillary or bill clinton had ordered the deaths of any of the people that we just mentioned most of the world has never even heard of most of these deaths, and on the surface, it does look like it might just be a coincidence. After all, Hillary and Bill are both in their 70s. They're both major politicians, so it's inevitable that at least some people around them are going to die by suicide or some weird circumstances. Or is it? Every politician has a specific reputation. JFK also had the reputation of a playboy, Dick Cheney has the reputation of war profiteering, and Bush has the reputation of invading the Middle East over oil. <laughs> and in all these reputations, there is some if not a lot of truth to them. So if Bill and Hillary Clinton weren't directly responsible for ordering each and every person on this list to be killed, isn't it suspicious that this is what they're remembered for? That this is the reputation that precedes them? Like why aren't people wondering about a Bush kill list? And isn't it a little bit too much of a coincidence that every single person on this list died in just one of three ways? And even if these were real suicides and real accidents, what did the Clintons do to these people to make them so guilty, so depressed, so afraid that they would even choose to kill themselves? Working for the Clinton seems to be one of the most hazardous occupations out there. Because even if you don't end up dead, this is what happens to you. Look at what happens when you work with the Clintons. This is Debbie Wasserman Schultz, 2016. And once you start working with the Clintons, something happens. And show her photo right now. Look at that is what happens to you when you're in with the Clintons. Wow. And Patrick, mind you, she was she was during the 2000s. It's 2000... not the same person, is That's it? That's her. That is her. That's the Clinton juice inside you right there. And then WikiLeaks released a bunch of emails between her and the heads of the DNC trying to oust Bernie Sanders. So that's when you're evil and that's what comes out of you so jake what are your thoughts about the whole thing man what a comprehensive breakdown of a lot of the things that really make you think they're taking people out you know mm -hmm. allegedly right so whenever we talk about political uh hit lists this is something that's happened throughout history uh, but what's crazy is it seems like they had to keep it covered up because they expected Hillary to win the presidency in 2016. Yep. You know, they I mean, they could have just slinked off into the dark recesses of past politicians, but they kept around despite this growing list of disappearing and self, you know, what people. So, uh... Uh, unalived people is uh, definitely something that seems to follow them and and if they are not perpetrating some type of hit list to take a, away their adversaries they absolutely are uh, followed by some uh, you know 
demonic angel of death that's making it happen if they're not personally involved. And uh, and I thought that was really interesting, the points he made about Jeffrey Epstein and how he literally had a blackmail painting on his wall just emasculating Bill. And Bill was his friend and went to Lolita, you know, went on the Lolita Express over 30 times and this guy has a painting of him in a dress. Like, it's so crazy and it just makes you think, man... There's more to the meets the eye than these upstanding, well-dressed politicians that control our uh, our Western politics. What do you think about it, Opa? You were here when, when Clinton was president, so what do you think about all of this? Coincidence? I always thought that he was a very, very shady person. Oh, yeah. And you guys let me know, you viewers, let me know in the comment section what you think about and by And by the way, if anything happens to me take a look at uh take a look at it <laughs> all of us <laughs> anyways yeah, me too yeah i i'm not uh i don't have those tendencies i promise <laughs> me neither all right well that's all i got for history i hope you guys enjoyed jake thank you for another great current news and memes as always Opa, thank you for another great opus corner i hope you guys enjoyed today's history segment and we hope you enjoyed the episode overall so Never quit fighting. Let no man deceive you. Thank you for coming alongside us as we fight for justice and continue this quest for truth. Subscribe and stay tuned. If you would like to submit a story, topic, or have any other inquiries, please email submit at skibanewsnation.com. Also, you can email Jeremiah Skiba personally at jeremiah at skibanewsnation.com. Also, email Jake personally at jake at skibanewsnation.com. If you want to write us a letter, send us something, help support us, or just say hi, please send your letter to Jeremiah Skiba, P.O. Box 560-271, The Colony, Texas 75056. If you write us a letter, I'll do my best to write you back. Hey, Skiba News Nation family, thank you for watching. Please like, share, subscribe, and click that notification bell so you never miss an episode of Skiba News Nation. If you want to help support us, please consider becoming a Patreon. Where you will get exclusive content, shout outs, and much more. You can also support our channel by getting yourself some new Skiba News Nation merch. Thank you for coming on this journey with us as we continue to stay on the quest for truth. Huge shout out to all our Patreon supporters. Thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do this show without you. If you want to help support us, go to patreon.com forward slash Skiba News Nation. Also, you can listen to Skiba News Nation podcasts on your favorite podcast platform.